the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the Word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life. All we need you to do is to call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877 877- 630-KSLR. Numerically, that's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And remember, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. Everything else is hands-free. And you'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Hey, I want to start today by thanking all of you for your prayers for our men's retreat. What a wonderful, wonderful time that we had. Uh, You know, uh, the the, the sound of 200 men singing at the top of their lungs and from the bottom of their heart was just awesome. Uh, It was just a really, really great retreat. Uh, A bunch of people got saved. Uh, the Afterglow on Friday night, which is sort of always a culmination of things. Um, uh, it just it was neat to watch the Spirit of God work in the hearts of men, and uh, people's lives were changed forever. We baptized a few people while we were out there, uh, but it was just really, really great time. All of that to say, I'm tired. <laughs> it was a busy, long but wonderful weekend. And then yesterday here at the church, we had uh, Pastor Gino Geraci, uh, who you heard on the radio program on Friday. Uh, he spoke here uh, yesterday at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. We got him on a plane, so he's back home in Denver. But it was just really great time, and I want to thank you for all of your prayers. Before I get into some questions, let me say that tonight, because it's Monday, our men's and women's uh, Bible studies will be going on along with our youth Bible studies. You can make it a family affair. Everybody can come. We'll worship together, and then everybody sort of goes into their own uh, areas, and we have the Bible study. Uh, tonight, Lauren will be, Lauren Blanton will be teaching um, for the, the women, and you can watch that at calvarysa.com. Okay, thank you for indulging me for a moment. Let me get to... Two questions that I had sent in here. Um, This first one comes from Debbie. She says, good morning, Pastor Ron. I'm a bit confused. Paul says to be out of the body is to be present with the Lord. However, we also know that our spirits will be caught up with the dead during the rapture. How is it if we've already died and are in the presence of Christ, then be raptured if we're already supposed to be in the presence of Christ? 
Um, also, Revelation 4.3, I'm really missing the mark. The one who sat there, the appearance of these jasper and carnelian, the rainbow I can get, but the stones are throwing me off. Jesus is human and God, so I can't get that description. Let me um, deal with that one in a moment. Um, uh, Debbie, I, I don't know why it's confusing to you. Um, the thing we have to remember is that people who have already died are with Jesus. They're not going to get raptured. They've already been taken to the presence of the Lord. So they're not going to get raptured. The rapture is going to happen. Uh, you and me, I say you and me, you're a lot younger than I am, I'm sure, Debbie. So you probably. Uh, Jesus will be um, um, calling his church home. And there's going to be a lot of people. First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52. He's going to be calling us to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And, and uh, we're going to be raptured out of here. But that's not just a spiritual rapper, rapture. That's a physical rapture. These bodies, Paul says, are going to be changed, transformed to be like his glorious body. So in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, that's how fast it's going to happen. We're going to be there with Jesus. So the people who are already dead, they're not going to get raptured. They're already in the presence of the Lord. Um, and we who are still alive and left will be caught up in the air to be with them. So I think it's really important we understand this. This isn't Jesus coming to earth. It's Jesus calling him or calling us to be with him where he is. John chapter 14, his disciples are crestfallen, Debbie, because they finally, it's sunk in that he's going to die. And he's talking about the resurrection. And, and he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. And then he says this, in my father's house are many rooms. Not literal rooms, not mansions, as the King James says. Just what he's talking about is, is he's prepared a body for us. And he says, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me where I am. That transformation is going to take place in the air, not here on earth. So, Debbie, thank you very, very much. Revelation chapter 4, verse 3. Let me get that here, Debbie. Uh, it'll take just me a second. Revelation chapter 4, verse 3. Got to get here too. I know this is dead air on the radio and that's not good. Here it is. Don't let anyone deceive you. Oh, no, that's the wrong place. See, I'm looking at my notes, and my notes actually take too long. Um, and there before me was a door open in heaven. And the voice I heard speaking to me said, like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was someone in heaven with, or a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Now, this is one of those times, Debbie, and I'm going to take just a minute with this. We don't have anybody holding online. We'd love your calls, but while nobody's holding now, I love this so much. And in fact, I'm going to be talking about this very passage of Scripture this Friday night in our Revelation study. And, and, and when we get to verse 3 in Revelation 4, uh, it's one of the times when words escape you. Um, it's impossible for John to have described what he's seeing adequately. Um, but what he saw was color, magnificent, indescribable color. John wrote in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. So the significance here is that there are three colors as these colors represent the Trinity, the triune God in all of his glory. The jasper, Debbie, is really a diamond, clear, perfect, and pure, the most beautiful of all stones. It has the ability to capture light and reflect brilliant colors. This diamond speaks of the Father. The carnelian, sardine in the King James, 
is blood red ruby. And this obviously speaks of redemption through the precious blood of Jesus who eagerly died for our sins. The greatest expression of love in the history of history. And third is a rainbow resembling an emerald. It's a symbol for God's eternal grace. God's promise to Noah, you'll remember, not to judge the world via a flood again. Now, one of the things to note about this emerald, is it, or this rainbow, rather, is that it's a full circle. In heaven, all things are complete. Normally, what we'll see in a rainbow after a storm is only part of it. But here, in heaven, the rainbow is seen before the storm that's always going to come. Now, the stones that you asked about. Um, there's deep significance for the Jewish mind in this. And, of course, John, being a Jew, would have understood this. The high priest's breastplate from Exodus chapter 28 had 12 stones on it, representing the 12 tribes of Israel. He carried them on his breastplate. Symbolically, Debbie was carrying them over his heart as a reminder that he represented all of Israel to God. The jasper stone was the first, and the carnelian was the last. The first stone represented Reuben, the oldest son of Jacob. The last represented Benjamin, the youngest. And those two names are significant. Reuben means, behold, a son. And Benjamin means, the son of my right hand. And obviously, these are references to Jesus, who... Um, who... Um, is the the first begotten son or the the son with a priority, the first begotten son of God and the son to whom judgment is given, being on the right hand, is the power position, the seat of authority. So I hope that helps, Debbie. And remember, I'm going to be teaching this very passage this Friday night, and it is a wonderful passage of Scripture. So, Debbie, thank you very much for the question. Here is a question from It's Monday. Oh, okay. Here's a, a, a question. Don't have the name. How can I explain to someone who is older than me, who is one of my parents, that even though they are divorced, they cannot be living with someone else just because they're lonely and for financial need. What scripture could I use? Um, you know, caller, um, this is a hard one. You know, parents are hard to 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 witness to, but, but as a believer. Now, you don't say that your parents are believers. And if they're unbelievers, as it appears that they are, if they're unbelievers, this is just the way the world works these days. I have the same question where it's, it doesn't matter if it's one of your parents, somebody older or somebody younger. I look at, at, at 18 and 19-year-olds now and tell them, you can't live like this. And they look, like, look at me like I'm crazy because, well, everybody does this. Why can't we live like this? And... Um, I think the best way to handle this is just to tell them the gospel, give them the gospel. And I'm going to be able to talk about that very thing on Sunday from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So I think that the only thing you can do is assume that they're unbelievers and just tell them that what they're doing is wrong. It's a sin. Jesus died for their sins and Jesus loves them. And now uh, I, I, I want to be sure you understand, I know that that's a very difficult thing for a child to do with his older parents. Tell them they'll never be lonely with Jesus. Tell them they'll never be alone. Not just never alone, they'll never be lonely. And Jesus will provide all of their needs. So I, I just think it's the Gaza, this is sexual immorality. Tell them the gospel, they need Jesus. Now, if they claim to be believers, then I think, and this is even more difficult for you, but I think what they need to do is be approached even more directly. This is sin. Believers cannot live like this. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 19, um, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 
people who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And and what you need to do is tell them, again, if they're professing believers, you need to tell them to repent. And that won't make you popular. They won't be happy. They may think you're judging them. But what you're doing is loving them. The way Jesus would love them, you would tell them, you need to stop doing this. But if they're unbelievers, they're just doing like the rest of the world is doing. And what they need then is they need Jesus Christ. So I hope that makes sense to you and I know how difficult that really is. Here is a question from Philip. He says, is all gambling sin or just irresponsible gambling? Um, Philip, I'm not prepared to say, and I know people want me to say this. Now, Christians want me to say this. All gambling is sin. Um, I had a man come up to me in the in the men's retreat this week. And he says, Pastor Ron, I, I'm playing the lottery. The numbers are really, really big right now. And, and if I win, I'm going to give the church everything that you need. And I just said, how about you let God take care of us? Uh, I think gambling is sin uh, based on your motive. Um, gambling is as old as the history of the world. But what's your motive? Is it greed? Is it lust for money? Is it I want an easy life so I don't have to work? All of that would be sin. And Philip, maybe you're, I don't know if you're asking this because you like to gamble a little bit, but um, I think Romans fourteen twenty three applies here. Everything that is not of faith is sin. If you can't gamble without worrying about whether or not you're sinning, that's the Holy Spirit knocking on the door of your heart and telling you that it's sin. And the Bible doesn't say specifically this is or this isn't. But remember, in the Lord, motive is everything. I don't think personally it's a horrible sin to play the lottery occasionally. But certainly if you are running short on money, you don't want to do that. Or if your hope is in the uh, uh, winning the lottery, uh, then you've got a real issue in your priorities with God or wrong. Now, Philip, I was asked this question on the um, pastor's discipleship uh, Q&A um, about gambling, and everybody laughed a little bit because uh, that's that's this, one of the great sins I was guilty of before I got saved. And the truth is, I don't want to gamble now. Jesus delivered me. He rescued me from gambling. Why would I want to run back into it? Why would I want to give the enemy an opportunity to compromise my witness. So, no, I've not bought any lottery tickets. I bought one lottery ticket, I think, and since I was a Christian, I was a very young Christian, I needed money, so I bought a lottery ticket. But I've been delivered from that. I don't want to run back to that. So, Philip, this is between you and the Lord. It sounds like he's already knocking on the door of your heart. Thanks a lot. Let's go to Joe on line one. Joe, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor. How are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Joe. Thank you. I just had a question. I am actually getting um, my degree in biblical studies currently. And um, in one of my classes, in one of the studies, we had a question that came up, and I wanted to get your answer on it. Uh, the question is, is what is the difference between sanctification and justification? Okay. Um, that's a, That's an easy one for me. It's a good one. So, uh, Joe, let me let me help. Um, justification. Here's the way to, the the easiest way to remember it. And some people don't like this because it makes it seem like it's a trivial matter. Believe me, there's nothing trivial about this. Think of justification as as though it's just as if I'd never sinned. When we become believers, when we ask Jesus Christ into our heart and we're born again, we are instantly justified. Um, um, we're perfect before the throne of God. We're as though we had never sinned. It doesn't matter what we've done or who we've hurt. It's all gone behind us. God has uh, thrown those sins in deepest, darkest ocean. So justification is the realization in heaven. Uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 24, we're justified freely. That justification came at the cross. So it's not something that we had to work out. It was given to us freely. That's for born-again believers. Sanctification, Joe, is different. Sanctification is the process of working out 
not working for, but working out our salvation. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Sanctification is the process of being made more like Jesus every day. It means that you are set apart for whatever it is that God's called you to do. You're set apart for him, but you're also set apart for what he's called you to do. And as a theology student, uh, Joe, uh, you could be set apart for anything. I mean, it, you you may know already, but if you don't know, you may be a Bible teacher, you may be a pastor, you may be, but, but that's what your life now is set apart for. I always like to think of sanctification as, as like a, a set of golf clubs. Um, you know, you, you have a golf club that puts the ball on the green. That's what that club is set apart for. You have a golf club that's bigger and bulkier, and it's it's made to make the ball go a long way. That's the, the, the driver. Uh, that's what that club is set apart for. Well, Joe, you and I, we are set apart in the same way. That's our purpose in life. And that process of sanctification takes a lifetime. Uh, it can go very fast. Uh, for those of you who are willing to surrender to the Lord completely, but 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 it goes at different speeds, and it's the lifelong process of being made more and more like Jesus every day. So justification is instant and it's complete, just as if I never sinned. Positionally in heaven, I'm perfect, but in life, I'm still working out that perfection. And that's the process of sanctification. So, Joe, I hope that uh, helps you. I hope it makes sense. Um, sanctification is, a, is an everyday adventure. And uh, the way I say it to our church here all the time is just be with Jesus. You're going to end up where he wants you to be. And that's the process of sanctification. It, it's character. It's direction. It's motivation. It's everything. And sanctification is really, even though sometimes it's hard, Sanctification is really um, the, the, the exciting part of our walk with Jesus. My process started a little more than 30 years ago, and I knew nothing. I knew I was forgiven of my sins, but I didn't know how to walk it out, to live my life. I didn't know how to respond to things in this world. So by learning about who he was and by spending time like him, well, that process of sanctification begin in earnest. And I'm a whole lot more like Jesus now than I was 30 years ago. And I've got a whole long way to go. So Joe, thank you very, very much. Appreciate it. And thank you for being interested in studying. Here is a question, uh, again, with no name. Will all people except Jews be damned with, with the great Illusion. I think the word you're looking for is delusion, um, and there are going to be Jews who are deluded. Um, so, so the the great delusion is going to come. Here's something we have to understand: Jews, simply because they're Jews. Now we're talking about individual Jews. Remember, when Jesus comes back, he's going to establish his kingdom in Israel on the throne of David in Jerusalem. But individual Jews still have to come to him by being born again, and the prophecy of Zechariah gives us a pretty clear distinction uh, of the Jews who are living at the time Jesus returns. In Revelation chapter 19, a third of them are going to give their life to Jesus. They're going to recognize that he was the Christ, the Messiah. Two-thirds of them are still going to have hard hearts and refuse to bow a knee, at least before they die. After they die, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Um, but the the delusion... Um, I don't want to be, um, uh, I, I want to make sure the distinctions here. The delusion after the rapture of the church is going to be sent out on everybody. And those who will believe will be delivered from that delusion. Those who will not believe. This isn't God just saying, okay, I'm fed up. I'm going to make it impossible for people to believe. Um, he's simply going to harden hearts that are already hard. Sort of like Pharaoh's heart was hardened. You know, Pharaoh hardened his heart against God seven times. Uh, he let the people go. Then he changed his mind and came back. But seven times Pharaoh hardened his heart. Finally, God gave him over to his heart. And Pharaoh's heart then was hardened. And the 
great delusion is going to be uh, pretty much the same thing. By the time that delusion comes, the great falling away or the great apostasy, apostasia in Greek, that will already have occurred. So I hope that makes sense to you. I appreciate the question. Um, People will be damned or condemned uh, because they reject Jesus Christ. And individuals who receive Jesus Christ, well, then that condemnation, of course, is going to be lifted because they too will be recipients of grace. Great question. Thank you very, very much. Okay, we're in about one minute here, I think. Um, Adrian, I get this question a lot, so I'll do this pretty quick. Do Christians need to stay out of politics, and what about churches? Adrian, we're we're political. We live in a political world. So we we need to vote. We need to participate in the political process. So no, Christians shouldn't stay completely away from it. What we need to stay away from is the arguing about politics. We need to stay away from um, believing that everybody needs our opinion or that we somehow have some righteous position that nobody's heard before. Um, You can hear the music, Adrian, so hang tight. I'm going to finish this on the other side of the break. We've got 30 minutes left in the Monday program. We'd love your live calls and questions. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second 30 minute segment of our program 340-9585 you know one of the things that was fun with uh, pastor gino at the retreat is that uh, gino uh, has a, a call-in show just like mine on our sister station, the Salem station uh, in Denver, Colorado. His show is two hours instead of one. And so we were talking about it, and when we were doing questions back and forth, uh, my producer and I, we were kind of laughing because um, you could tell his 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 program was two hours because he kept going on and on and on about the same questions. So uh, it was fun. And and what a what a fun guy, Adrian. Let me finish your question. Then I got a call holding. I'll get to in just a moment. Um, um, what we Christians need to do, as I indicated, is stay out of the argument. We, we you know our kingdom is not of this earth, or of this world. And so what we need to do is remember that the only answer for a hurting world is Jesus. And when we get engaged in politics. We forget that Jesus is our only hope. We put our hope in a party. Um, social media has made it so easy to sin. We argue. We we uh, treat people badly. We speak rudely. Um, we, we, we have no humility. We think our position's right. We want people to agree with us. And, and Jesus is saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. There are unsaved people on both sides of the political aisle. We need to tell them about Jesus. And we just don't do that because we don't really believe that Jesus is enough. Churches, I think also, Adrian, uh, ought to stick to the Bible. Pastor's job is to prepare the saints for the work of ministry, to equip them. Pastor's job is to prepare them to go out and share Jesus. Pastor's job is to tell them how much they're loved and valued by God. We don't do that if we're Addressing political issues or ideologies, that's even worse. Thank you, Adrian. Let's go to Buda, Texas and talk with, or Buda, Texas, I think it is, with Jared on line one. Jared, thanks for holding your on the air. Yes, I got a valid question. With all the COVID patients up there in San Antonio and all around, how come you and your father don't go down there and lay hands on a court of Mark 16? You claim to be charismatic, right? Well, it says, these signs will follow them that believe. 
and that if, that, if that's written to you, you got a problem because you don't believe if you're not doing it, yeah. and you're not Jared, doing thanks it. For, no, never, yeah, Jared, thanks, thanks for the call. You can listen if you choose to. Uh, I know who you are. This just a different name that you're using. This time, um, actually, we do believe, and you have no idea how many people we've laid hands on, people with COVID. The other thing you have no idea about is what the Bible really says, do you? We're told to be workmen, rightly dividing the word of God. And you're unwilling to do that because you've got this hyper-dispensationalist view of things that, well, just study your Bible, humble yourself, and maybe, Jared, just maybe, God can really use you. Let's go back to some questions. 340-9585. Ashley says, Pastor Ron, I was told that altar calls are unbiblical. Is that true? Um, No, Ashley, they're not unbiblical. Now, um, they didn't have church in the same uh, style that we have churches now. Um, But the, the call to choose was an everyday part of the early church experience. So altar calls are simply an invitation. Choose this day who you will serve. You know, the first altar call that, that I can remember in the Bible is Joshua. The end of his life, he said, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You have to choose who you're going to serve. As God's God, serve God. If your gods are served, our gods serve them. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And throughout all of Scripture, the idea of choice is prominent. So the fact that you can't see the sinner's prayer in the Bible or you you don't see anybody giving altar calls, come forward, please come forward, raise your hands, God bless you, I see your hand kind of thing, uh, that doesn't mean they're unbiblical at all. It is culturally the way we respond to um, giving people the choice. And we do that daily. In first century church, people got baptized. They would make a, a public profession of faith. Instantly, when they got saved, there was baptism. Uh, we don't have baptismals in all of our churches. And it's not um, um, culturally appropriate to have people come and even if you have a, a baptismal, to come to the front in their their clothes that they wore to church and and get them all wet. So we do it differently. We have baptisms. Our baptisms are more of an event so that people can remember it. But what we do is we invite people forward. And actually, let me tell you this. For um, 26 years plus now that I've been teaching the Bible, um, I don't remember... A single service where an invitation to receive Christ wasn't given. Now, we don't have people come forward on communion Sundays simply because we don't have the time for that and communion. But I still give them that opportunity during the communion service. But we want to give everybody a chance. The Lord's been very clear to me. If if I've got a microphone, then I need to give anybody who he's brought there a chance to know Jesus. One of the real benefits, actually, of this is that the people here at Calvary Chapel know that every Sunday there's going to be an opportunity here for people to receive Christ. And they'll invite friends and family members, knowing that they're going to be given the invitation, knowing that they're going to be given the opportunity. So no, altar calls are not unbiblical at all. Jesus would smile every time, because that's precisely, Ashley, what... um, we're to do. We're to give people a choice. Do you want Jesus or do you want to go to hell? And there'll be people say, "Well, it's not. I'm not going to hell. That's that's. I want to go to heaven, but I don't believe Jesus is the way." Well, they need to be instructed. This is the way things are going to be. Being with Jesus forever has to be determined by being with Jesus here on earth. Thank you for the question, Ashley. Appreciate it very very much. Here is another question, Anonymous. Do you believe that we live in a society that is much darker than past history? Or is it really the same with pockets of history being more moral than others? This is a wonderful question. Um, If you really study the Bible and study um, the, the secular historical accounts of the world around the time of the Bible, Old Testament and New, 
um, we can go all the way back to, to Cain and Abel. Um, the world apart from Christ has always been really, really dark. And I don't think the world is any darker now than it's been. People say, but it's much worse. It's worse in the United States than it's ever been, but certainly not in the world. Um, and it's always been dark. That The enemy, whenever the church has not been functioning or not been consistent or, or, or focused on holiness, um, the devil always has an opportunity, and he is is the, the definition of darkness, and he's the one who's, who's sort of moving the pieces like on a chessboard. So it's always been this way. You know, I get tickled a little bit when we think about, well, I want to go back to the good old days, you know, even Donald Trump's slogan, Make America Great Again. If you understand history, America has never been great. Now, I love our country, but it's never been great in the sense that we're godly. Now, there was a time, certainly in America, where Christians were looked on, on with, with admiration. Uh, churches, uh, being a pastor, was, was considered a wonderful um, um, way to make a living. It was, it was a virtuous life. Uh, and, and those things aren't true now. Um, we remember a time, anybody that's as old as I am remembers when homosexuality was something to be ashamed of. And people kept it a secret. Why did they keep it a secret? They kept it a secret because they knew that it was something to be ashamed of. And now we've decided, oh no, it's better to be true to who you are and then just accept or affirm what anybody wants to do. Uh, all we've done is we've fallen into that place that Isaiah prophesied. It was true of Israel in the short term. It's true of us now where we call good evil and evil good. So I think it's always been the same. Uh, if you look at people uh, we've been studying in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was probably the, 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 the most vile, dangerous man uh, who's walked the face of the earth. Completely unbridled authority. And yet God's grace reached even to him. So... Uh, I just think it's really, really bad, and it's always been bad. Now, having said that, I also believe that things are going to get worse because that's what the Bible predicts. In the last days, Paul tells Timothy, he said, mark this. It's, it's, he's calling attention to it. There will be terrible times. One translation says perilous times, and then describes the condition of people's hearts. And we are turning into that place right now in these last days. So it's going to get darker. But I don't think the time that we live in is any darker. If, if you could have lived in uh, Nero's Rome or Caligula's Rome, um, uh, Augustus's Rome, um, it was the same kind of sin, over-the-top sin that we see now. Um, nothing is new under the sun. So as for now, I don't think it's any worse than it's ever been. And even as I say that, it is going to get much worse because Jesus is getting ready to return. So thank you for that question. I appreciate it very, very much. Here is a question from Darnell. I hope that's not Daryl and I just can't see. It says Darnell, I think. How can Christians resist the pressure to be tolerant of sinful lifestyles in the name of love? Uh, you know, I think you ought to understand, Darnell, what love really is. Um, it's not loving to accept a lifestyle or to affirm a lifestyle that someone, if they live that lifestyle, is going to inherit hell for eternity. That's not loving. So I think we've got to get comfortable. Um, stop apologizing for what we know is true. And I think we have to, over and over, the, the, the exhortation to stand firm is given to us in our New Testament. We've got to stand firm behind what we know is right. We've got to have convictions, immovable convictions. We've got to have things that, are, that we stand on and, and our minds aren't going to change. Um, years ago, um, I just recently heard this man has now gone to be with Jesus. But a really old man, um, he was in his 80s at the time, 
uh, started coming to our church, and he and his wife asked for a meeting. And um, he asked me, he said, uh, Pastor Ron, we like the teaching here, we love the church here, but I need you to make me a promise. And I said, what's that promise? And he said, that you're never going to accept the godless lifestyles that are being forced down our throats. And I said, you know, if I do, then you need to find another church. But right now, I've always stood, it's my intention to stand for what God says is right, what God says is wrong, and I'm not going to change. Now, the reason I told you that quick story is because the reason that he told me that is because he built a church, and I mean literally he built it with his own hands. The founding members of the church built it brick by brick. And after, you know, 40 years in that church, the church went very liberal, and uh, they started uh, uh, teaching that that homosexuality was okay, uh, that, that you could even hire homosexual pastors, and it literally broke his heart. Tears were running down his face. It literally broke his heart that he had to leave the church that he helped build. So, Darnell, here's how you do it. You just decide to be a follower of Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm not going to be moved by the arguments of this world. I'm not going to be moved. If everybody in the world says this is okay, I'm not going to say it's okay because Jesus doesn't. And I think, Darnell, that commitment comes only in the Word. I don't think there's any other way that we can resist this world. And let me add one other thing. As Christians, we need to be men and women in the Word. I say that so often on this program, but we absolutely need to be in the Bible because if we're not, the world is going to persuade us that they're right. And the only thing that we can know for sure is that the Bible is right and it never changes. And we've got to put the Word in our hearts and in our minds. It's the only way we're going to resist the attack on the Bible. It's the only way we're going to resist falling into sin ourselves. A, a, a Christian who is not in the Word, is going to be won over by the culture that we live in. And as much as it breaks my heart to have to say that, I've seen it over and over and over and over. So it's that simple. We are being brainwashed. And that's why Paul says, do not be conformed to the things of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the only place our minds can be made new is... By, by being in the Word of God. So, Darnell, that's the only way that's possible. And then, as I said earlier, you have to know what love really is and not be influenced by what someone might say when they don't really know anything at all. Here is another question. What is Calvary Chapel's beliefs on tithing? Um, I, I can't speak for every Calvary Chapel pastor. Um, I think mainly um, my colleagues in Calvary Chapel would agree with the position that I'm going to espouse right now. Tithing is not a New Testament principle. It's certainly not a command as it was in the Old Testament. And the only place, a tithe means a tenth. And the only place you see tithing is in the Old Testament and in the Gospel accounts. We have to remember that Jesus is ministry was entirely Jewish. Jesus was um, um, here to fulfill the law. So Jesus would have tithed. Give to Caesar what is Caesar. Give to God what is God's. And they were always trying to trap him with those questions. But Jesus, by establishing a new covenant, did away with the law. Now that doesn't mean we still don't keep the Ten Commandments. We do all of them except one are repeated in the New Testament. And that one, we're, we're told Jesus is the fulfillment of. That's, of course, Sabbath worship. So, yeah, we we read our Bibles. This is the way we want to live our lives. And that means we're also to give to God. But we're not to give to God a tenth. Now, let me ask you a question. If, in fact, under the law, law which condemned a tenth was demanded. And one other, by the way, here, 23 to 28 percent 
was required when you took in all of the the offerings that were given. But let's just stay with the the income. Um, uh, 10% was required under law, a law that condemned. How much more do you think we ought to give those of us who are under grace? Well, think carefully about that. The law condemned, we give a tenth. The royal law of love that saves. What are we supposed to give? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us we're to make, uh, to, to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And the easiest way for us to understand that is that those sacrifices are time, talent, treasure, everything that we have or ever will have belongs to God. And then we have this principle of stewardship. What are we going to do with what God has blessed us with? And I think too often we like the idea of, okay, I'll tithe. One for God, nine for me. Well, that's easy because it limits what we need to give. But I really believe that God wants to give people the opportunity to be generous. He wants to give people the opportunity to receive crowns in heaven. The way we do that is by saying, Jesus, it's all yours. Not nine for me and one for you. It's all yours. What do you want me to do with it? Now, God will let you keep most of that stuff. But he wants to teach us to be stewards. And we're to give, not under compulsion, which the law is. We're to give with a cheerful heart. Literally, it's a hilarious heart in the Greek. And we understand that we cannot give God. So tithing is not a New Testament principle at all. There's a lot of reasons I think pastors do it. I'll save that for another time. But I think the thing we need to remember the most is that we owe God everything. And what we give him, in large part, determines just how intimate our relationship with him really is. So good question. I hope that makes sense to you. 340-9585, and we've still got some time for a phone. Well, we're inside five minutes now. Here's a related question. Patrick says, what is the difference between tithing and giving and love offerings? Patrick, you've been going to a sort of a wild, charismatic church, haven't you? Uh, tithing, I just explained. Tithing is giving 10%. It is uh, a standard of giving that was established in the Old Testament. Um, it, it's not necessarily a bad place to start as a Christian, but, but I think uh, tithing, a, a pastor that teaches these three things, uh, tithing would, would be saying, okay, that's the least you can do. That's the place to start. Giving... I think, um, um, you know, we've got churches that, that take multiple offerings, uh, and, and giving is simply giving out of the generosity of your heart to people in need, to, to causes you need, you give. Uh, we have a lot of people that give to our radio ministry. We, we, we never ask for money. You've never heard me one time on this, this program or our teaching programs have been going on a lot longer. We've never even mentioned money. And yet God moves on people's hearts and they send um, um, money to us, just, just giving. It's over and above what they give to their, their uh, local church. Love offerings. Um, a love offering. And you hear this on the radio all the time. For your love offering of, we'll give you this gift. Um, you know, that's kind of silliness. All of our offerings to the Lord ought to be love offerings. All of them. But I just think we have become really good at marketing people in the church. And we come up with different things. You know, I once spoke at a church where, uh, and, and I, even before I was a pastor, and I was speaking around at other churches, I would never, ever indicate that we had any kind of a need for anything. And the pastor came up after I was done, and they were blessed by the message that I gave. And part of it was the mission that we were headed out on and coming to San Antonio. And he said, I know Ron would, would, would be upset with me, so I didn't tell him, but I'd like everybody to, to, to dig deep and give Pastor Ron a love, a love offering. And I was mortified by it. And, and then at the same time blessed at the end of that 
time uh, one one young woman came up to to Paul and she said, um, "I was going to give, I was going to go out and buy a new CD. This is how long ago it was. I was going to buy a new CD or new cassette or whatever it was at the time, and 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 I just thought." I could spend this money better for the kingdom of God and give it to you as a love offering. And I appreciate the love offering, but the idea is that giving needs to be sacrificial. Giving should never be easy. It shouldn't be the least we can do. It should be the most we can do. And we ought to do it with a grateful heart. So I think, Patrick, um, whether you call it tithing or giving or love offerings, I just think... um, we need to give as the Lord leads. And for those of us in public ministry, what we really need to do is um, we need to just offer God everything. Here's the last one for today. i got to hurry. Anonymous from our email inbox. I've always had huge issues with King Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, I had anxiety as a kid thinking about what he did to King Zedekiah. I, I can be doing that. I wanted him to burn in hell. Daniel is my favorite because he was faithful all his life after that same rotten king castrating him and taking him away from everything and everyone he knew and loves as a young teenager. With your Daniel study we're going through now, I see Daniel could have a heart for his soul because he wanted God's will. Wow, to be like Daniel. Thanks for your great teaching. Anonymous, what a nice thing. You know, we all want a pound of flesh. And for those of you who don't know, King Zedekiah had his eyes gouged out after watching Nebuchadnezzar uh, torture and and murder his sons, and um, um, I mean King Nebuchadnezzar referred to it earlier was a ruthless, violent, brutal man, and uh, Daniel wanted him in heaven. And chapter four is his testimony anonymous. That that made my day. Thank you very very much. And like you, wow, I want to be like Daniel. Hey, thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.